this should be the portion of our time where I start to break down Kanye's new album because that is what's important. Um, so I, I really wanted to scrap my whole sermon because I bet all over the United States today there are ministers who are like, oh, that's a great Kanye l- lyric, and they're going to put it up on the screen and just like, Kanye speaks truth. And I'm like, you know, yes, he does. Because Screams from the Haters got a nice ring to it. You know that every superhero needs his theme music, right? Amen? No? All right. Dude, I'm dropping Kanye lyrics like they're free. Actually, the the quandary I had today is how can I tie the Kanye thing into my introduction? I'm going to try. But I I have to start off with the topic that I want to use for the introduction, which is the concept of tolerance and intolerance. As a seminarian back in the 1990s, I remember, I think it was like Josh McDowd gave a, uh, wrote a book about this and actually preached a whole sermon about the threat to Christianity in the coming era is the threat of tolerance. And his perspective was, is that Christians and people in general, but specifically Christians, are going to continue to tolerate more and more and more until our values erode. So what's interesting, I've found more recently, is that the opposite has happened societally. That we've hit a point, I'm not talking about within the church, I'm talking about secularly, that we've hit this moment to where intolerance is now widely accepted. And you might think, well, you know, is that really accepted? You know, we don't usually think about people being intolerant as something's happening, but it's actually not just Steve's opinion. There are actually scholars who have written on it. And the book um, that I've read this past year, Coddling, uh, the Coddling of the American Mind, and I always miss Greg's last name is Lukianoff, I, I think, and Jonathan Haidt co-wrote this. And the two men are um, East Coast faculty members at uh, very prestigious schools. And what they have noticed over their teaching career is that students now today are triggered more so than at any other point to where places of higher ed, which used to be places of free exchange of thought are now becoming much more limited of scope to where students come in and if somebody even tries to bring in a divergent view to help the students understand it, there are widespread protests that they will shut down schools because they do not want to hear something that which they, with which they disagree. That is actually now couth now to be intolerant. And the point that both Lukianoff and Haight make in this point is that our intolerance can actually prohibit our path toward growth and learning something new. And a quote from the book is, growth is seeking out challenges rather than eliminating or avoiding everything that feels unsafe. Freeing yourself from cognitive distortions rather than always trusting your initial feelings and taking a generous view of other people and looking for nuance rather than assuming the worst about people within a simplistic us versus them mortality. This is where, let me see if this works to bring back in Kanye because I really think that this is a prevalent thing that is happening now is that people have made their decisions and if you disagree with them they won't even listen to you you know it's the proverbial stick your fingers in your ear and go la 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 I really think one of the reasons that Kanye was able to feel empowered to launch a new album that is called Jesus is Lord which is basically Kanye West's worship track I think that we're hitting the point to where Christianity now is so countercultural that it could actually be cool to put an album because it's like, oh, look how edgy that Kanye is because he's a Christian and like that'll market really well. I might be wrong by his motivation. I have yet to attend the church of Kanye. I just say that this, I believe, is indicative of our society is that we now want to shut off things with which we disagree to make ourselves feel more safe and comfortable. 
And that actually brings us to where we're at as a church. We're in a study of a book of the Bible. It's the book of Acts. We're calling this series Behind the Scenes because something that I appreciate about the Bible is that it's not all gumdrops and unicorns, that there are difficult things in the scriptures that we sometimes have to struggle with. And there are times when we, people of faith, actually have an intolerance to certain things in the scriptures because it doesn't align with our view of faith. And we get one such incident here as we're reading this week in the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 5. And I encourage you, if you have a digital Bible, you can pull up uh, Acts chapter 5. Nobody has a digital Bible. You get what I'm saying. If you would like to search your Bible, it's like, this is my digital Bible. It's like the Kindle. Kanye is going to come out with one, I'm telling you. But um, there's also pew Bibles. If you want to grab a pew Bible, they're scattered around. Uh, We are on page 773 in the pew Bible, 773. And I want to begin by just reading this verse, and we're going to have to go backtrack, so just stick with me. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So to understand the now this happened, we need to go back to what Kelly talked about briefly last week when we had our missionaries from Pakistan in. And what she read at the end of this is how the church was developing at the end of Acts chapter 4. It was becoming a a robust community of care. So I think it's Acts chapter 4. There's a few verses in here. We'll go next slide maybe here. 32 through 35. I think I ellipses this. But just that all believers were one heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This is the, uh, the epitome of what the church ought to be. It ought to be a community where we come together united under Jesus, and if there are deficiencies within the community, we don't laugh at them, sneer at them, ignore them, but we try to meet the needs that are present, correct? That's how Christianity should work, and that's how it worked in the very earliest days of the church. So they were like, hey, in, in this Greco-Roman society where government was in control, but there weren't actually systems of government care. And actually, it's something that made the church incredibly popular and diverse is that at the time, the familial unit was the major unit of care. So you wanted to have lots of kids. You needed to have a spouse. You needed to have, a, you know, be fruitful and multiply because that was your social security system. And if you didn't have a familial backing, then you were isolated. But this is what the church did. The church was able to fill that gap and it became a community where we were brothers and sisters and we could live each other. We could care with each other. That's great. And not only was this the reality, but then the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, gives us an example. And that is an example of a man named Barnabas. And if we read the rest of the book, we understand that Barnabas ends up being a key leader in the church. And here he gets some dap right at the beginning where it's just like, hey, by the way, not only did some people put the money at the apostles' feet, but Barnabas was like, look, I've got this piece of property. Real estate would have been immensely valuable. This shows us that Barnabas had some level of affluence, which was very, what do I want to say? It was, it, it was not normal in the early church. The church was a movement of poverty that was able to bring together their limited resources, but the people who did have much tried to live that out, and this is what Barnabas did. Takes his field, sells it, takes all the money, and says, this is for the church. Let's use this for the greater good. That's what brings us to the beginning of Acts chapter 5. So there's these two people, Ananias and Sapphira. 
happy couple. They too have a piece of property. And they're saying, you know what, what we need to do, we want to, we, we want to be like Barnabas. We want to get the run that he has. But at the same time, man, that's a good piece of property. That's worth some, some good green. We better, and green in this place, cash, not, you know, I, I started with my Kanye reference and I'm getting it, you know, just green meaning money. Sorry, I'm trying to be cool and hip. But it's like, we can sell part of the field, keep this, tell them we gave everything, and everybody will be like, oh, Ananias and Sapphira, they're the best, right? So they hold back part of it. And now, now, this is what it's saying. They, they hold back part of it because that is actually a very key aspect. So for me to understand this, keeping back, I've got to get a little geek on you. Can you guys go on my geek journey with me? Okay. The Bible was originally written not in English. Ha, 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 shocker. It was written in ancient languages. And there are other languages that are interspersed within here, but predominantly, the main languages the Bible were written in was in the Old Testament, before Jesus was born, was written in the uh, the ancient Hebrew language, which is different from modern Hebrew, by the way. And then the New Testament was written in, again, I call it ghetto Greek, but it was Koine Greek, it was street Greek, not classical Greek. It was a, a Greek that was popular in language. So this is something that happened right in the years before Jesus was born, because the Jews used to treat not just the Bible as sacred, but the very letters of the Bible as sacred. Like I, when I was taking a class um, in, one of a, in a secular university, uh, this teacher told a story about one of her Orthodox students who you know, was so into the ideals of Judaism that the teacher wrote the word for God on the chalkboard and the person came up at the break and said, you can never erase that because that's the holy name of God and it can never be erased. And she's just like, well, I'm not the janitor, so if you can find the janitor and have that conversation. Why was that so important? Because even the language of Hebrew in ancient times was sacred. But something happened in the years before Jesus was born. They realized that as Judaism spread, it, spread it, it's, it, it continued to spread around the world, that people needed to understand it in a language that they knew because many people didn't understand that. So there was a translation made of the Hebrew Bible, and it's called the Septuagint. I, I, I could geek out and tell you all about the Septuagint. It's like there's a lot of mythology that surrounds it. But we actually have copies of the Septuagint today, which is a Greek translation of the old testament okay a little geek are you tracking with me there's this thing where they translated the hebrew into greek so most of the people in jesus's time and in luke's time who wrote this their understanding of the old testament was the septuagint translation so they didn't know the original hebrew so when they were talking about the scripture they would talk about it in the greek language so here's the key luke is doing something that we english speakers we might miss because it's incredibly subtle right here but i told you in verse two it said that ananias and sapphira kept back the money this is actually a specific greek word and the word is um i cannot pronounce it because my hebrew is bad one more time man easy for me to say that's the word you believe it do open up your Septuagint. You'll be like, Steve is correct. That's great. Okay. Why is inasafato so important? Because the word that Luke uses here was used in the Septuagint in the book of Joshua to describe a story that happened with a man named Achan. Joshua chapter seven, verse one, is that there was a man named Achan who took some things and the word there is inasafato. 
So what Luke is trying to do here is he is making a correlation between this. So what's Achan's deal? So we have, we have one more geeky journey with me because we're going to the Old Testament. You didn't know we were going there. We're going there. This is the thing. God's people who were captive in Egypt were free. They messed around in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God's like, go get your promised land. It's all good. They cross the Jordan River and the first city they come along is the city of Jericho. Do you guys remember this story maybe? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, 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 and the walls came tumbling down. Did Joshua make the walls come down? No, he was not great militaristically in that sense. He could not make walls come down. The tactical uh, approach that the God's people used is like, look, we will attack the city by walking around it. Like we will do some, you know, maybe, you know, it was just, oh, I can't even think of it because I'm, you know, like athletic jumping walking, right? Like, did they strut? You know, was it a Vince McMahon like thing? I don't know how they did. There was trumpets. There was the Ark of the Covenant. They're just like, this will work. They're walking around the city. Can you imagine the people who are like, maybe they're going to walk a moat around the city. Who knows what they were going to do? You know, they march six days. On the seventh day, they blow the trumpets. Walls come down and the people of Jericho are like, they were just walking and then they were dead. Okay. The point of this story that God wanted to say was though, hey, remember this is the first city that we come up. He goes, the first city, that's mine. He's like, look, you guys are gonna get the rest of the land. Just give me one city. Because I want you to see that even though this city looks real good, there's some great plundering to be done right here. You don't need to plunder everything you see because God will provide. Okay, did you knock down the walls? No, the walking, God allowed the walls to collapse. So he said, don't touch anything, but somebody's always got to screw it up and it was this man named Achan, right? And by the way, says in Joshua chapter 6, 18, don't do it. Achan's just like, "Eh, I think I'm going to do it. So what Luke is doing, no, I have to show, so Luke used the words inasfisato, in his translation of the book of Acts, and when he was talking about the book of Acts, he was referencing this story. And what I want you to see then is the story of Achan from the Old Testament and the story of Ananias are interlinked, okay? Now we'll see more about this as we read to the next verses, verses three through six. So Ananias, if I, he, Ananias here has thrown the money at Peter's feet, is the, apostle Pete, the apostle's feet, verse three. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept for yourself some of the money that you've received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have lied to men, uh, not to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Man, there's a lot going on right here. Let's break this down. So the first thing that, and this is what I love about the original languages too, is Ananias is a Hebrew word, and Hebrew words always have meaning. Ananias' name, by the way, is God is gracious. So God is gracious. He graciously just struck him down dead. He hit the smoke button multiple times. God's like, trying to make sure that he makes this point. I just love that umbrella under which the story rests so this is what I find interesting about this story too is that so you know Peter's like dude you done messed up God smites and then the dude's dead there and they're like you know now what do we do 
And Peter's like, go call the youth minister and get the, get the youth group in here so the teens can come in and go bury the body. Like, do you like that? Like, the young men came in. Like, it was the teenagers went and buried this dude. They're like, this is the weirdest church ever. Like, if you think you grew up in a weird church, if your church never had you bury a dead man's body, then it was better than what happened in the early church. Stick with me. This is all going to make sense, or maybe it won't. Let's go back to the story of Achan, because I think we need to see that there's a correlation right here. In Acts chapter 7, verse 24 through 26, when Achan's sin was found out, when he had taken the sacred things of God, God said, don't take this, this is mine. And Achan's like, I'm going to do it. What happens within that? They say, hey, Achan, let's, go. let's just go down to this valley right here. And then everybody, everybody's, find your favorite rock. And you're like, oh, is it a stone skipping contest? No, they stoned them to death. And again, going back to my green references, this is not a drug reference right here. They threw rocks at him until he was dead. And not only that, actually, you read through the text, he, they stoned him, they stoned his family. I love this too. It's like his cattle, his donkey, his sheep. Like, it's like the, the, the donkey is just like, my life sucks. You know, like he got killed because that was my best Eeyore. Did everybody, everybody track in there? Yeah. I go from Kanye to Disney like that. I'm a maestro. But it's, why did this happen again? You're just like, does God just like to smite people? And again, what we need to see in the connection here is that there's something dynamic happening within this relationship or in these two stories. And the point that God is trying to say, understand, Ananias's sin, when he's just like, dude, you've sinned. It's not that he didn't give all the money away. You're like, is that my prevailing lesson here? Like, if I don't come to church and write the check of everything that I have, that I'm going to be smote? No. The idea is that what Ananias was trying to do was to use the church for his personal gain. He's like, hey, I can hold back some money, have what I want, but then also get the credit because these are just dumb human beings. They'll never know. And the lesson with there was like, you know what? God knows. God knows. So when we're looking at the, the difference between the two, Achan's sin, basically, you know, God said, it's not, God said, it's not mine. I think I messed that up. I was trying to get this right. So basically, God said, it's mine. He's like, it's mine. Don't touch. Achan said, I can take what I want. I think I can get away with this. And again, I messed up. Get away from this, not get away from this. Get away from, with this. Ananias, on the other hand, is very interesting, is that there was no command from the apostles. There was no command that they had to give everything that they had right here. But Achan's just like, hey, I said it's all God's. I can keep what I want, and I think I can get away with this. So the big thing that happened here is that there was a deception going both sides of the coin. And it was right at the very crucial times. As Israel came into the promised land, God wanted to say, look, this is what it's like to be my people in the promised land. In the book of Acts, as the apostles are starting the church, God is trying to say, this is what my church is going to look like. And your personal motivations to try to manipulate these systems of God's kingdom will always fail. Now, I'll tell you what I believe these stories do. And again, this is why I talk about this idea of intolerance. I don't know how many of you are like, you know what my favorite Bible story is? The one where they kill the guys, donkeys, goats, and kids because he took a few things. You know what my favorite story is? You know, that that couple who lied about their real estate transaction and got smote. I think it brings up this tension between the Old Testament and the New Testament views of God, right? 
like we, we, we put in our mind is like, you know, in the Old Testament, God was just angry and bitter and he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He's like, that's like, that's God on a, like a rainy Tuesday morning, right? Like he's just ticked. And he's just like, I will kill your, 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 your children in pestilence and, you know, I, I will elevator music. Just all these horrible things just raining down on you. It's like, that is Old Testament God. But New Testament God is cool. And he's just Jesus who's happy and lovely and he's great. So we like to put these frameworks because it makes us feel better. And that's why Acts chapter 5 blows all this stuff up. Because we've got some Old Testament God showing up in the New Testament. It's like, where did he come from? You know, it was like a, the surprise entrant into, in, into the wrestling competition. Like, this is it, you know. It's like, oh, my God, that's Old Testament God. And comes in and just the pile driver. Like, it's over. So how do we try to make these two things work together? Especially because there's a principle, a characteristic of God that is key to who he is. And it's a $3 theological word, but it's immutability. That God is immutable, right? The idea that our God isn't like Old Testament, New Testament God, early morning before coffee God, and then late night after a few drinks God. Like God is God, right? So we have to deal with that, uh, what is it, Hebrews chapter 13, where it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. You're like, well, that's Jesus. He's cool. No, Jesus is God, right? So you have to grapple with what it means, this story. How do you synthesize all this into what it means to follow Jesus? This is what we would call a conundrum. It should bring tension to our lives. Let's see if moving forward we can resolve the tension because we still have to kill off Sapphira. Verses 7 through 11. When Ananias heard this, he, oh, I said that, sorry. About three hours later, page turn, his wife came in. Where was she? She didn't know what had happened. Peter asked her, hey, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, it is. That's the price. And Peter said, don't. No, Peter said, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who are young teens, by the way, we've seen that, who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And all the kids are like, dang it. You know how hard it is to kick, like, dig a hole that big? Well, at least she's more diminutive, so the hole will be more shallow. At that moment, she fell down at the feet and died. The young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. They had a nice little plot. Was it on the portion of land? We will never know. That would have been like, that would have been like the worst insult irony, right? Great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear. By the way, I didn't put this on the slide, but uh, Sapphira's name is beautiful. I love that it's just like, God is gracious and beautiful. It's like this happy story. It's the worst story, right? God just out smiting people right and left for kicks. Like, how do we pull this into? I, the, the thing I do love about this is that if you were thinking, how do I, how do I kill a church? Like, how do I make sure it never grows? Well, I think the first thing is to start having members just drop dead when God convicts them, right? Like, I, I think that's the how you don't grow a church. And what's interesting is that in this text, great fear fills the church. And you think fear is a negative thing, but we see in the scriptures in Proverbs chapter 9 that the fear of the world, Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so many times we correlate fear with something that's unhealthy. But friends, sometimes fear is the healthiest thing that we can have, right? 
I was thinking about, I grew up, uh, Eric works with, uh, with my brother, and I was thinking about that. The reason that I did not enter into my family business, which was electric, is because I, it, I do not like it. Like, you just get, you get zapped a few times, and you're just like, there are other careers in here that are less perilous than this. Okay, so that is why when I do housework right now, I'm, you know, not only do I flip the breakers, but I take a piece of tape and I put it over the breaker just to make sure that I'm not in a numbskull, flip the wrong thing so that I'm, I'm licking the electric juice, right? Like I want nothing to do with that. That is fear, but that fear keeps me alive. But for some reason that we think that the fear is a bad thing. So it is obviously sad for Ananias and Sapphira in this story. You would think that the church would end, but notice, if you will, that Acts chapter 5 is preceded by Acts chapter 6 and 7 and 8, 9, 10, all about the church. So it does not stop here. And the irony is that the church continues to grow even though God is smiting some of the very first believers. That's a weird story, right? If I was Thomas Jefferson into creative editing of the Bible, I would be, I would grab my exacto and just cut this story out and keep going. Because really, you take this story out of the book of Acts, and it still reads pretty good, right? So why is it there? Why is God doing this for us, or to us? I want to talk just two things as we're looking at what we can learn from this. First is, I call it the localized lesson, because I think we need to look at the lesson of this scripture text and what it means for us as followers of Jesus. And the first thing is I think a lot of what we are seeing here comes down to integrity in the church. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to live with integrity. And that is something that our relationship is based on. Relationships go awry when we start to not trust the people with whom we're in relationship, right? That is what makes relationships difficult. Because once somebody lies to you, once you're aware of that, it infects your relationship. And that's why integrity is key, right? Now, what's funny is we always demand integrity from other peoples, but where? Other peoples, other people. But what about your integrity? Who do you need to be? I love this. There's um, a a, um, scholar, his name is Stephen Carter. And Stephen Carter talks about three lessons of integrity that I just find very interesting. Because integrity is... One, to discern between right and wrong. Two, to act on that discernment. And three, articulate that you're actually acting on that discernment. Okay? So first, it's the idea that I understand what right and wrong is. Like, if, if you don't get this step, it's very hard to live a life of integrity. And as much as you're my, okay, is that the Judeo-Christian ethic right there? Is it a Buddhist ethic? Like, where do we come down to? Let's just be awesome. In basic integrity, you, you are able to discern. And I would offer this, not just to the Holy Spirit, because of who you are as a human being, what right and wrong is. So you have to be able to discern that. But it's not just enough to know right and wrong, because we know that there are plenty of people who know the difference between right and wrong and still do not live lives of integrity. You have to be able to act on that And then the last key, I love that he includes this, is the ability to articulate why your action is based upon that, right? So it's not enough just to do what is right, but to be able to articulate why you are doing it. I appreciate this. I think this is a social construct that's helpful. What happened with Ananias and Sapphira? How did they live their lives? Well, actually, when they looked at integrity, they failed to discern what was right, correct? Like, they, they were just like, you know what's a great idea is for us to lie about something, and then we can be the benefits. That's, that is poor discernment. Not only that, they acted on that. They went ahead and said, not only is this is a really horrible idea, it's a horrible idea that we should see to completion. And then finally, 
And this would have been the most interesting thing in this story. What if Peter had gone through and said, hey guys, uh, is this everything? You said, we've brought everything. Is this everything? And they were like, you got us. <laughs> like, good, good sleuthing, Peter. You know, does God just like take one of their legs? I don't know how this works out biblically. I would tell you though, that that was the opportunity for them to be able to repent for that. And one thing that we see throughout scriptures in the Old Testament, also in the New, is that when people are able to come in and just admit, admit what they've done, that we see forgiveness and grace, right? What do they always say just publicly? The cover-up is always worse than the crime. This was a chance to expose their actions, yet they didn't do it. They failed at every step. Can I go back to what we talked about the last couple chapters? Because it was very interesting, is that we see a other example of this that I think is a positive example. So if you want to see how Acts connects, look, look at how Peter and John actually handled their integrity as they went to the temple and ended up healing somebody, right? Because the, the temple leaders were like, you know, hey, don't be going healing people. That was Jesus's thing. We killed him. You guys shouldn't do that. And they're like, no, nope, we're going to keep healing, healing people. Like we will be what God wants us to do. They figured out that's what they need to do. And they acted on it, even though it could have cost them everything. And we will find out in the history of the church is that eventually everybody who stands up for this, it does cost them everything. Yet at the same time, they were able to say, this is why we are doing it because Jesus is Lord. You might have authority, but we are going to live lives in integrity despite that. Friends, it is hard in our world today to live lives of integrity because, because you can always edit what integrity is, right? If you just get a very good social media platform and justify yourself, and you can have a revisionist history of your life and your integrity. We see it every day from politicians to, to, to you know, what do I want to say? Uh, social media, darlings, whatever these things are, influencers, right? Or even to average people. Like we can try to edit our integrity, but friends, God is not just immutable, but he's also omniscient. He knows it. So you can't get over on God. So you've just got to live the best. Listen, last thing on this localized lesson is that as much as integrity is important, do I always live a life of full integrity? I do not, okay? Praise be for the grace of Jesus. Praise be that God's still not in this smiting business that he was doing then. You know, I have an existence, but what that does is keep me in check all the time. I have to ask myself, am I living a life of integrity? You don't just like, hey, I've mastered integrity. On to the next thing. No, it is a lifetime of work. It's a lifetime of work. Localized lesson, I wanted to say that. Can I, can I do this, though? I think there's a larger lesson that all of us need to be aware of with this. And this is why... Um, I love our church. I love being in the city because we, are, we live and work among diverse people who hold a whole wide pantheon of beliefs. And sometimes them knowing that you're a Christian just makes life awkward in itself. But I really think there's a larger lesson here is that you and I can live in the tension of God's word. I'll tell you, this is actually the shift when I was, um, you know, growing up or when I, when I was studying for the ministry and in the 90s, you know, talking about things, it was like the solution was, hey, you want to follow Jesus? Here's a Bible. Read the Bible. And now I've hit the point 20 plus years later where I'm like, there's no way if I'm trying to introduce somebody to Jesus that the first thing I'm doing is handing them a Bible. Because as much as I might be optimistic, like, oh, this is a great book, I know 
that they're going to hit Acts chapter 5. First. They're going to be like, I'm going to open and see where the Spirit leads me to, to start reading. And they're going to start reading Acts chapter 5, and they're going to be like, what the heck? Like, you want me to be part of this? Or they're going to hit Joshua chapter 7, where it's just like, God, they stoned his donkeys? Or they're going to hit Ezekiel 23, and they're going to be like, what is this even? It's like demented Bible porn. And some of you guys are like, for later, Ezekiel 23. Just, yeah. But what we tend to do is ignore it, right? We put it out of our collective conscious. You're like, no, no, no. Acts 5 was a bad day. God is cool the rest of the time. No, friends, I'm telling you, you have to learn to live in the tension with the Bible. And do you know what it means to learn to live in the tension? And this is, I think, key. You have to humble yourself and admit that as much as Jesus and God allow us to have a great glimpse of who he is, there's some things that are tough to figure out. And to be honest with you, be honest, I'm a theologian. By by education, I'm going to tell you, even though I've been doing this stuff for decades, there are still aspects of this that it makes my soul feel weird and awkward. So what happens when you feel weird and awkward? Some of us, we just, it's like, I'm going to Netflix binge and I'll forget all about it. Or it might even take you on a trail. This, this, this last week, there's a new book that came out. And, it, and I'm not dissuading you from reading this book. It's by David Hart, That All Shall Be Saved. Um, and it's very interesting because it's about, does hell exist or not? And uh, it's very interesting because this book is beginning thing because he comes out and he says, to be a Christian means there's no way that you can accept the, hell, the existence of hell. So not just that he has doubts, but he's like, no, if there is a hell, then everything of, a, of Christianity is bunk. And by the way, I'll tell you this as a church, which I'm not trying to scare you guys, but this is a real thing. Maybe you're just like, hey, there's no hell. We, okay. Like, we will allow you to journey within that. It's not like we have an official... Larry, do we have an official statement on hell? I don't know if we do. I think we might, but it's just this idea and the statement that we have on hell, I think is, yeah, it is. You're like, you should research this, Steve. You have no idea what this church believes, Steve. We take the Bible and the Bible says there's a place that exists that's hell. Now, is that our wish? Is that our driving force where it's like we're trying to scare the hell out of you and you should follow Jesus as a result? No, but I'm telling you, the concept of hell is something that I live in tension with because you're just like, are you serious? Like if somebody never hears a story about Jesus, if somebody's a devout Jew their whole life, like if all this is just like, they just, you know, they get to shoot down to the fireplace. So what this guy came through is just like, he he's trying to reason, and the issue, by the way, if you read the book, he, good, good intended guy, Boy, he pulled out his thesaurus, like Microsoft Word thesaurus thing, because he was using every big term to try to show how brilliant he was. And I was, it's just very interesting. He's like, well, rationally and logically, and he does whole chapters trying to explain, if you believe this about Jesus, this can't be true. And at the end of it, I was just like, dude, I know you're working hard right here, but just sometimes you have to say, oh, this just, it's weighty. It's tension. It sucks. So what do I do with that? I don't think about it. No, I live in the tension. So this isn't a sermon on hell. You know, you're like, way to open up that can, Steve. But I just, I have to say it. This is why if you don't believe in that, we still want you to journey with us. But what we're saying is that the scriptures talk about it, so we need to live in tension with that. And it doesn't mean I have to wrap it up in a bowl for you. It's like, oh, there is a hell, but we're not going there, yay. I think it has to be a thing where like this exists and it frightens me, it fills me with great fear. And when I'm filled with great fear, what do I do? If I'm filled with great fear, do I just shut it out? Or when I feel great fear, do I just like, okay, 
I don't get this, God. I don't understand this, God. But I'm going to trust that there's something out here. I really would like to know, was that at least helpful for me to explain this? And if we need to have a whole thing, you know, you can email Seth. And if I have to come through and do a whole thing on the doctrine of hell, which nobody really wants to do, right? I don't want to do it. But what I want us to show is that sometimes the Bible isn't just this clear path to happy ending. But my tactic can't be one of intolerance to where I'm just like, nope, don't agree with it, shutting it down. It's got to be, you know what, today, God, I'm struggling. My verse of the day was Joshua chapter 6 and 7, my, you know, and I read about Achan. What were you doing there? Did you have to kill, like, his kids and goats? God, when you started the church, did you have to kill a couple because they told a lie? Like, what is this about? It's okay to be a follower of Jesus and not have everything figured out. It's okay to live in the tension. God's shoulders are broad enough that you don't have to have every answer at your disposal or that you don't have to align with a certain teacher or preacher because that's what they say. And you know why? Because we're the church. We're the church. Remember Acts chapter 4? Will you go back to that text, Dylan, is at the very beginning? Remember what we saw in Acts chapter 4 where it was like, you know, hey, this was the community of Jesus when it was going really, really well, right? Where it was like they were all together in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. The ellipses right there doesn't say, and they had every aspect of their theology figured out, and they knew exactly what God was doing in every and every situation, and that they, they had complete knowledge so that they could tell those pagans exactly the sins that they were committing and how this was working out. By the way, none of that is in Acts chapter 4. You know what it was? Is that this was like, look, they were this community. They believed in Jesus. And they saw each other and loved each other. I would rather your understanding of theology of Acts 4 supersede your understanding of what certain aspects of the gospel and the Bible that bring tension to your life are. Does that make sense? So I hope that larger lesson resonates with me, you. I hope I didn't blow you up or put you in a place of tension. But now, now, nope, stopping. I'm pretty proud of that. Sometimes you need to leave church happy and smiling like you've got it all figured out. And sometimes you need to leave humbled because there's a God in this universe that knows more than we do. How are you living in the tension? What's that last verse, Dylan, I was uh, talking about? I I can't even remember. I guess I wrote in my notes. Oh, it's 2 Timothy 3.16. That's the thing, friends. The scripture is filled with so many things, but all of it's God's breathe, God breathed. So God put it there for a reason. It's his word. We might not like it, but we need to live in tension with it. Let's be on journey together. We pray with me right now? Lord, thanks for that story. <laughs> thanks for putting that in there for us to wrestle with. Thanks for making us uncomfortable. And God, um, will your Holy Spirit just please work through us this week as we're grappling with all these things. Help us to humble ourselves and realize, Father, that um, this church isn't there for our personal gain, that you don't exist for us to know everything about you. Bring some humility into our lives. And Father, um, more so than that, help us to see a church as a place for people who need love and care to find love and care. That we're a family. And that we might not share the same DNA, but we share the same Savior. 
Thanks for loving us, for guiding us in Christ's name. Amen.